We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was one of the anchors on the greatest defense ever assembled. He totaled 82 career sacks, moving between defensive tackle and defensive end. He was first or second team All-Pro six times. He made the All-Decade team for the 80s, and he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Dan Hampton. Dan, welcome. Hey, thank you, Rich. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, defensive linemen, we don't, we didn't, we didn't get a bunch of hardware <laughs> when we played. But uh, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the the kind introduction. And the one thing that you said, might as well kind of get started there. Uh, I'll be 66 come fall. And, uh, you know, life goes fast. I didn't realize at the time, the 12 years of uh, being in the NFL, they, 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 they just fly by. But all that being said, everybody kind of <clears throat> longs to, to make a mark to say, hey, I had certain relevance. And what you said off the top was being a part of one of the – What if you go on – you know, Google and greatest defense, it's the 85 Bears. And at the time, at the time, we knew we were kicking ass, but we we didn't know that 30, 40, 50 years later, everybody would have such a reverence for what we were doing. And uh, it's it's humbling. It really is. Hey, you know, at the time we were peacocks and strutting around and, you know, we're going to give you a dose of it. And But now looking back, it uh, it was tremendous. And my lovely bride and I were driving back from Florida two weeks ago and I was coming through Lexington and then halfway between Lexington and Louisville, there's a little town called Shelby. And I always either stop and fuel up or honk the horn because that's where Buddy Ryan lived. That's where Buddy Ryan was living when I would go see him after he was done with football and, uh, Different guys, Gary Fensick and I and uh, Lenny Walterscheid, 
the terrific safety that we had in the early 80s when we were just trying to figure out how we're going to run that defense. Anyway, the long and short of it is, yeah, we had a lot of great players, but I mean, the, 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 the interfacing of the scheme and the, the players and their abilities, but maybe the thing that jumps out more to me about anything was the, the motivation, you know, factor of Buddy Ryan and our attitude. Our attitude, we, we, we were never, our thirst was never quenched. We wanted, we couldn't wait to play again. We couldn't, we would play in the parking lot. We didn't care. Nobody cared what anybody was making, uh, you know, who won what award, whatever. We couldn't wait to line up and play. And that's right. the thing about that defense that I, I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, so, so Dan, b- before you're on the Bears, you're a graduate of University of Arkansas. You're from Arkansas. You play high school at Jacksonville High School in Arkansas. And yours is, and, and one thing I've, I've noticed after doing all these shows, everybody's path is just so unique. And I know that's kind of a trite thing to say, but, you know, every story has like a twist that you just, just is surprising. With you, you're a you're a very good athlete as a young guy, probably not a surprise to most people. You're big, again, not a surprise to most people. You have a really horrific accident in in the middle, in like middle school, like in seventh grade. Tell me a little bit about that and how that kind of impacted your, you know, your athletic career in kind of the middle school and high school years? Truth be known, I had been able to be on a little Satoma football team in sixth grade. And I was 180 pounds, six foot tall, and I could run 10 flat 100. I grew up on a farm and it was all work, all work. And so I was like a little admin. I mean, I was, nobody had weight rooms back then. And, uh, but I was tremendously strong. And anyway, um, the junior high coaches were aware of the fact that, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, when I, I could start as a seventh grader on the junior high team, you know, cause, uh, I'd run for two or 300 yards a game when, you know, we only played like five games in this little system. So I was all excited about playing football. And about a week before, it was the end of August, uh, lived in uh, a town called Jacksonville outside of Little Rock. And it was uh, dead dog days of August, 100 degrees, and we're killing time and we're mucking around on a big tree that we had a treehouse built in with a rope. Anyway, my brother was up on the rope. No, I was up on the rope in the tree, and he was down on the ground. He was shooting BBs at me, and I was and I was trying to get away. And I grabbed a branch, and next thing I know, I hit the ground, and it was probably thirty-five feet that I fell. And when I hit the ground, it hit, it, it kind of knocked me out. And when I woke up, I could feel this uh, intense pain. And I looked down, and uh, the tibia and fibia above my ankles both were broken, and so my Legs are just laying sideways. And <laughs> there was no ambulances and all that stuff. So my, my brother and the little neighbor kid we were playing with and my mother had to load me in the back of our station wagon. But I don't remember because I, I guess I was just, you know, the neoephrinephrine that your brain creates when you have a trauma, kind of dead and all. Anyway, so the doctor said, look, uh, the nurses said the doctor's on lunch till about one o'clock, so no sense in coming in. So I sat in the back of that uh, station wagon for an hour until we drove to the doctor's clinic. 
<laughs> Once I got there, they they were like horrified, said, oh my God. So they, they did get an ambulance to come get me there and put me in a hospital. Now, I uh, wake up the next day and I've got, uh, you know, a plate with screws in my right heel that got fractured and a bunch of the bone was taken out. But anyway, the long and short of it is that now I've got hip cast on and I'll be in a wheelchair for the next five months. And anyway, the doctor came in and said, you know, it was catastrophic breakage and yada, yada. And we know that you're thinking about, you know, playing football. And so we're saying you're going to have a hard time walking. So you might want to do something else. So I actually kind of football was dead to me. And I, you know, then I want to, you know, the next five months I'm uh, in the wheelchair. I, I kind of get involved in music. My mother could play guitar. She showed me that. Then when I finally got started back in school, which is weird, Rich, because, you know, everybody says like riding a bicycle. Well, after five months, I couldn't walk. I had to retrain myself to walk with crutches. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it at the time. I thought, you know, I'm just going to jump up and be able to walk again. I couldn't. Anyway, um, it didn't happen until my father passed away a couple of years later and things got tough. And then, you know, a kid starts thinking, okay, what about me? What am I going to do in my life? What am I going to be doing five years, 20 years now? Um, we had a coach uh, that was a terrific, terrific coach uh, in high school at Jacksonville. He was trying to figure out a way to turn a, a Mormon pro program around that hadn't won. I think we were 0 and 11 uh, my 10th grade year. Anyway, so he was hired to turn it around. And how do you do that? You got to get better players. You got to get more players. So he started working on me saying, you can come out. And I said, I told him about my legs. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the good Lord, your body has an amazing ability to recover and heal. And anyway, he said, oh, if you come out my junior year, if you come out this summer and put in 100 hours of um, training, lifting weights and running around the track and all that stuff, because it wouldn't be fair for you just walk in and in August and everybody else did the off season. So he, you know, that in a, in a way that, that, that kind of made me understand that, you know, in life, the commitment has to be, you know, shared. Everybody's got to have, you can't have favoritism. And, 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 you know, all these little things started kind of formulating in my mind. So I did all that. And then uh, I actually, uh, they tried to play me on defense and offense both ways. But anyway, long story short, I kind of wore down. And by my senior year, they had me at offensive tackle. And I was real skinny. I I'd lost weight. And uh, I told you we didn't have a whole lot of money. And then we didn't, I didn't eat lunch a lot. And anyway, by the end of the season, I was about 220 pounds, 6'6", 220. Mm. And uh, yet I still was able to, I made All-American. And uh, so anyway, the Razorbacks, uh, you know, were recruiting me. And I was so blessed that Jimmy Johnson was the defensive coordinator at the University of Arkansas. And uh, he saw me playing a high school All-Star game. And I did a great job of blocking this great player that uh, I became great friends with at Arkansas. But he was like an archer downstate in Benton. Anyway, long story short, uh, Jimmy, when I showed up at Arkansas, uh, I had every intention of playing offensive tackle, but uh, 
found out that Jimmy goes, no, I want that big kid, uh, that skinny kid from Jacksonville. And so he put me on defense and I actually started a game my freshman year. But by the time I was a sophomore, I was a starter. I wasn't very good. I, I didn't have rich in life, you know, uh, in that old movie, uh, City Slickers or whatever, Curly, the, the, you know, Jack Plants, the cowboy goes, life's about one thing, you know. But what is it? What's that one thing? He goes, you'll know it when you find it. Well, if you're playing music or you're playing football or you're building houses or whatever, there's a, I call it a trick. There's, there's something that you can just go, boom, and I understand it and it becomes simple. I hadn't figured out the trick yet, especially see, because I hadn't played defense that long. Sure. And my senior year, I kind of got halfway down the road learning the trick. And, and you know, I had a great year and I was defensive player of the year and all that crap in the conference. But by 1982, it's like the seas parted and it became so evident. And I, in 82, and it was, it was kind of like a, uh, I may be jumping ahead, but it, I, you don't know what you got until it's gone. Right. I was still healthy in 82. I was defensive player of the year in the NFL. Pro Football Weekly voted me. All the writers voted me. Well, not the Chicago writer for whatever reason, Don Pearson. <laughs> but everybody else voted me defensive player of the year. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. The next year in training camp, I tore the ligaments in this finger. And it was a nightmare season where I wound up having two knee surgeries because of it. and. Anyway, the long and short of it was I was never healthy again. And right. yet I still had to reinvent myself and figure out. And every year I'd be getting one or two knee operations where I had to be on crutches for anywhere between four and, and six to eight weeks because right. they were doing an abrasion. And so that was, you know, everything got really hard after 82. It was, yeah. it, you know, it was a great year. And I was like, I'm Superman. Nobody can block me. And the good Lord has a way of kind of, kind of giving you uh, the what for. Keeping things in check a little bit. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you, let me, let me jump back for one second about your Arkansas years. So you get there, Jimmy Johnson's the defensive coordinator. Frank Broyles, legend, is in his last, your first two years at Arkansas are his last two years. Yes. And the first year, um, you guys are pretty good. You're 10 and two and you go to the Cotton Bowl and you stomp Georgia. Uh, yeah, you stomp Georgia. Yes, sir. Um, and you're you're getting a lot of playing time. You're starting and and you're you know you're you know racking up stats and all that. Your next year, Broyles last year, you're a 500 team. Then they bring in Lou Holtz, and Lou is just a unique guy. And you, you played for some pretty unique guys in your career between Frank Broyles and Lou Holtz, obviously Jimmy Johnson, Ditka, Buddy Ryan. I mean, we'll, we'll get into all of this. Um, Monty Kiffin. Was Monty the Kiffin, the coordinator under Lou Holtz, Monty Kiffin, the great Monty yeah. Kiffin. Yeah, and and uh, that your junior year, you guys are eleven and one. Your only loss is a close loss to Texas. You're playing Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. They're number two in the country. They are favored by like three touchdowns. A couple of guys, I don't know what they did, break curfew or do something, and Holt suspends them on the eve of the Orange Bowl. So you go in with a bunch of backups to include a running back. You crush them. You know, and, and so, Rich, it, it, you know, it, in life, just, you know, in football, like in life, it, there, 
you know, there's ups and there's downs and there's, and, and, and it's all about how you overcome them and deal with them. And so we had a very successful year. My freshman year, we went and beat Georgia in the Orange Bowl. We were like, we ranked number two or three in the nation. And we had a bunch of guys on our team, uh, good guys, good players. But for whatever reason, it was like they started thinking about their future in, in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And everybody was kind of doing their own thing. And so we had a team that was almost, you know, in constant turmoil and, and, and chaos. And it, 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 was, it was a nightmare. And that's one of, the, one of the reasons why Frank Brawls retired. He, he basically said, look, he, he knew that he had let this thing kind of get away from him. And he should have hired Jimmy Johnson. He really should have, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He told Jimmy, you're, you know, I don't think you're ready. I'm going to go hire an existing head coach. So he went and got Lou, who was in the process of leaving the Jets, which was a debacle for Lou. But anyway, well, Jimmy basically told Frank, F you, I'll be back. Well, he left and went to Pittsburgh for a year. That's where he and Dave Wanstead party, uh, partnered up. They got the Oklahoma State job after being at Oklahoma State for two years. Then he got the Miami job. The first thing he did when he took the job at Miami was schedule Arkansas. Three <laughs> years later, he came back the number one team in the nation. They got off the airplane in Little Rock in camo, and they beat the living hell out of the Razorbacks, like 48 to nothing. Wow. Anyway, that was basically Jimmy Johnson saying, oh, I'm not ready, huh? Thank you, Frank. Anyway, but that's that, that was long after I left. So, I mean, it, it's just, a great story, you know, though. But that five, five in one year kind of always was a cautionary tale to me in my mind because I could see, even though there was good players, we weren't a good team. And that's what Lou said when he brought us in the very first day. He goes, I'm watching film. I see all these terrific players but I don't see a terrific team. And he says, you know what? We're going to take a team that went 5-5-1, five, five and one, came in eighth in the Southwest Conference, which at the time was the badass conference of, of America. And, you know, we're going to have to rebuild this thing. And nobody but nobody could believe that we were one play away from becoming national champions. And in an abstract way, I got a thing on my phone. Well, that year, because... Texas had lost at noon. Oklahoma, number two, now became the de facto national champion. And when we killed Oklahoma, they did a deal where they shared it between us and Notre Dame because we all had one loss. Everybody had one loss. And so Notre Dame had beat Texas and we had beat Oklahoma. So, But all that being said, it was, like I said, a cautionary tale. I saw a team that had seven or eight guys drafted by the NFL, came in eighth in the conference, and yet, because we played together as a team, for the team, for each other, we'd become, you know, you know, we're one play away from winning the national championship, even though we kind of were. Now, that team, the, the, the game we lost was last second against Texas. And unfortunately, Arkansas had a big complex with Texas. It's almost like a guy, a little brother, kind of envying the big brother and always kind of trying to find a way to beat the big brother, and he never can. Well, Texas was Texas. I mean, look at a map. 
Arkansas, little bitty Texas, they get all these players. We get hardly nobody. We had a, 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 a very rich culture of Arkansas football players on our team, but still we didn't have Earl Campbell. And Earl Campbell caught a screen pass in the last seconds of the game. The only pass he ever caught in his life in, in college and pro. And yet nobody was covering him because he never caught a pass. And he went 73 yards on a screen pass and it beat us. And we, we were up nine to six. Now it's 13 to nine. And anyway, long story short, we put a chip on our shoulder. We played hard and we get to the orange bowl. Going the night before we go to the Orange Bowl, our starting backfield and receiver, 88% of the offense, Ben Cowens, uh, 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 Donnie Bobo, and uh, a big back. I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, there's an incident. Anyway, it escalates, and the cops are called. And we had this do right rule that Lou had. If you if the cops you know you know called you and arrested you, then you're, you know, you're off the team. And so we had to soldier on. But the night before the uh, Orange Bowl, we were in the room and Lou, Lou gets up there and says, look, you know, all anybody wants to talk about is what we don't have. You know, those were great players and they were a special part of the team, but we've got to go on without them. He says, but nobody's mentioning we got the best kicker in America and Steve Little, we got the best defense in America. We, you know, we have terrific depth. We got blah, 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 blah. And anyway, anyway, Lou went on Johnny Carson after we won this game. I mean, it was a big deal. It shocked uh, the college football world. And Lou became an overnight success and, and instantaneous star. And wanted to be that. He was special. But he was funny as hell. And he did some magic tricks. And he could do this. And he could do that. He was a master motivational speaker but anyway Johnny Carson kind of set him up and said well you know you, your team was undermanned and you're playing against Oklahoma they had six All-Americans and and you know everybody said that they were the best team you know college football had seen in, in you know 10 years and you guys had no chance you were 26 point underdogs he goes well what did you tell the team Lou said it was simple I said, this is the greatest team in, in the history of college football. The last 11 out of the locker room have to play. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, Johnny, you know, died laughing. But, <laughs> That's but, great. That was, it, it's all Lou Holtz. He had so many. Like, we were playing Texas Tech. And if we beat Texas Tech, uh, the Orange Bowl committee was in the stands. It was between us and, I don't know, uh, Notre Dame or somebody else, you know, back then they, they, they had committees that would go and, and they would select the team that, that they wanted to uh, invite. Sure. Anyway, so the Razorback fans, uh, the day of the game, they show up at the stadium with a bunch of oranges. And after we're killing, uh, Texas Tech was like 10 and one. And, and, you know, oh, they're going to, you know, we had a tough game. We were killing them 38 to nothing, something like that. Anyway, all the fans are throwing oranges on the field, and the Orange Bowl committee, you know, was overwhelmed by the support and and the whole idea of you know the fans being so creative. 
that after the game, they said, oh, this is great. We, we want the Razorbacks to be a part of the Orange Bowl. And everybody was, you, you know, euphoric. Anyway, they, they came up to Lou. Lou, what did you think about it when the fans were throwing the oranges on the field? He goes, I'm just glad the Gator Bowl wasn't coming. <laughs> 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 yeah, all this coming up. I remember reading a quote of his early in his career. He coached at William & Mary. Yes, he did. Yeah, like some success, but not a ton. And they said, hey, Lou, what was the problem there? He said, uh, too many Marys, not enough Williams. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny. So so you know, he also told one real quick. Yeah. <laughs> William & Mary, they had to play the service academy. So he had to go play Navy. In his first year, they go up to Navy. And Navy was pretty good. And... You know, it's a beautiful stadium. It's a round stadium on the second level. They have all these, you know, battle uh, 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 names up on the uh, on the stadium wall, like Saipan, Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal. I mean, he said it's just, you know, it's awe-inspiring. And he's walking by, and all week long, he had told his team, we've got to, you know, we can beat these guys. We can beat these guys. They're not that great. We can beat them. He's walking by and his big offensive tackles telling the quarterback, man, we ain't got no chance. And Lou says, I lose it. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean we don't have a chance? What, what makes you think we can't play with these guys? He goes, well, look at the schedule they play. I mean, my God. <laughs> but that's Lou. Lou was the – I got to see Lou in Washington, D.C. about, oh, I don't know, last fall. And uh, he's 84 maybe, something like that. But he's doing he's doing good. He's doing good. And he's a he's a he's a treasure is what he is. He's a treasure. Yeah. He he came to when I was a kid in high school, University of Minnesota was dreadful. Uh, they they had a year where they were one and eleven and they weren't that good. After and, he got fired from Arkansas. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And he came up and as you said, he does the magic tricks and all that stuff. And he said, This is what we're gonna do. And everybody's kind of looking at him. And within a year they were competitive, and within two years they were in a bowl game. And the, uh, the one unfortunate thing was, he said, one stipulation <clears throat> in my contract, if Notre Dame comes calling, I get to leave. And sure enough, after two years at Minnesota, Notre Dame called and, you know, the rest is history. Um, so 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 that's, in, you know, an incredible sto you know, story that that Orange Bowl win. The next year, you guys are good again. You're like top 10. You're nine, two and one. You're the Southwest Conference Player of the Year, which is a D lineman is is saying something. You become a number one pick of the Bears and the Bears are coming off, you know, kind of a 10 or 15 year run where they're just not that good. Hallis has um, uh, he's got Jim Finks in as the general manager, Neil Armstrong, who, like Finks, is from the Vikings organization. He's the head coach um, and he's got a defensive coordinator, Buddy Ryan, who he had brought with him from Minnesota. And you come in. And you're right off the bat, you make an impact. You're all rookie your first year. You start making Pro Bowls your second year. Um, and you come in. What What's it like coming in? And, you know, here's George Hallis, who I, my understanding was he was a little bit hands off by that point in his career. But, you know, it's George Hallis, Jim Finks, this, you know, terrific GM. Buddy Ryan is your DC. Tell me about, like, you know, what it's like walking into that locker room. We had a scout. Well, I see we at the time the Bears had a scout. His name was Jim Palmer. And essentially he was the South region. Mm -hmm. And he was hired by Jim Finks. And Jim Finks was 
I mean, if you think about it, I mean, our general managers in the NFL Hall of Fame, our owners in the NFL Hall of Fame, my coaches in the NFL Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, there's a reason why I had success. I mean, it wasn't I wasn't with a bunch of freeloaders that, you know, were grifting. These guys all knew what they were doing. But Jim Finks was the one. He His very first year in Chicago was 75, and he drafted Walter Payton. Then he drafted some offensive tackles. They didn't turn into the 12-year-old pros, but they were they were effective. But in 79, uh, the defense needed – Buddy Ryan was brought in in 1978. And the guy that you got a picture of behind you, Alan Page, had got released in Minnesota that year. He had kind of got out on a, on a different wavelength, and he was jogging and running a bunch, and he had lost a lot of weight from 280 down to about 230. And they essentially thought that he wasn't capable of playing at that weight, and they, they let him go. And Buddy, Buddy didn't care, you know, what kind of car you drove, who you were, how much you weighed, anything. If you could do the job, you could do the job. And the Bears at that time, we did not have pass rushers. Anyway, um, so Alan Page is brought in. Yet Alan Page was in year 13 or 14. There, I mean, Jim Finks knew he needed to, like he did in, in Minnesota, build a defensive line, the foundation of the defense. So in uh, the 79 draft, they had the number four pick in the draft. And Jim Palmer had come to Arkansas. And back then, there was no Blesto or anything like that. The scouts would come by, and they would look at you on film and then all that. And uh, there was no pro date. But if, the, if, if you would – if they could, they would ask you, would you want to run a 40? And 90% of the guys would say no because, you know, they could pull a muscle, they could run a bad 40, whatever. I was kind of like a – Speckle pup. I you gotta remember, I'd have been only been in football now for five, six years, and still it was. Um, I would, you know, I'd say, Hell yeah! And he said they had a, a time on, on me uh, of my spring in spring practice the year before. We, we ran 40s that the team had on record, and that's what they provided the NFL. And I ran a 5.5.05. Uh, so over five uh, second 40. Anyway, the, Jim Palmer, you know, he, hey, blah, blah, blah. He's from Texas. I'm from Arkansas. We, we struck up a conversation and he goes, look, I, you look a lot faster on film than you do your five flat time. It's a big deal. Would you want to? I said, hell yeah. So I went down and I ran. I ran a four, seven, eight, and a four, eight. Anyway, which those are monumentally different numbers. And how lucky was I that he took the time and effort to engage me and that, you know, I had the opportunity. Well, anyway, so he, he went back to Jim Finks and basically said, this kid, he's going to be a player. And so the Bears, um, you know, they drafted me. And the next year we drafted uh, Mike Singletary and Steve McMichael uh, was – let go by the Patriots, and we picked him up. And then in 83, we got Richard Dent, and the next year, Wilbur Marshall. And and by 1985, um, you know, the stars in the constellation kind of thing had kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, emerged. And 
it was all, uh, you know, Finks was the one, the grand design. And he was the one that was, you know, kind of masterminding and plotting this. And all, all the while in 80, we drafted Keith Van Horn. Oh, Will, uh, Otis Wilson was a first-round pick in 80. The next year was Keith Van Horn, first-round pick. Two years later, Willie Galt and Jimbo Covert, first-round picks. So he he was building the team. And it, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people – you know, say the 85 Bears, and they give Dick a lot of credit and give Buddy Ryan a lot of credit, but you got to go back further. You got to you got to give a lot of it to Jim Finks. Yeah, I mean, Jim Finks built that Vikings team that went to a bunch of Super Bowls in the earlier 70s, builds your team, hell, goes to the Cubs and and puts them in the playoffs. Yes, I mean, in 1984. Yeah. His, his actually, Hallis died. In, so, Rich, in 83, Hallis dies. It was Halloween night. Walter had gotten us uh, like a little party space at the top of the Arlington Park Hilton. And we're watching the uh, Monday night football game. And we're having a good time. And about 9.30, across the bottom of the TV, back in those days, there was a crawl, like a little, you know, the crawl. Yep. And it said, Hallis, uh, George's Hallis uh, passes away tonight at age 87 or whatever it was. And we all looked at each other and we set our cocktails down and we turned the lights out and we left and we went home. I mean, that's, you know, we had that much respect and deference for him. The very next morning, the very next morning, his grandson takes over the team, Mike McKeskey. Nobody liked Mike McKeskey, especially Ditkin, especially Jim Finks. And Jim Finks even said over the last couple of years of Hallis's life, look, I'm going to leave because I don't want to be here when you're not here because he knew what was going to happen. Sure. Well, this, you know, McKeskey, anyway, he starts effing things up from the first morning. And anyway, everything's changed, but we still were able to go and, you know, to the championship game that year and the next year win the Super Bowl because of the residual effect of things. After right. that, not so much. Everything started, you know, kind of uh, tearing apart and things were completely different. Yeah. It, and so one thing, so I interviewed Gary Fensick for the show maybe a year ago and he was great as you can imagine. And I was asking him about Alan Page and, and I, I was also saying, you know, you and you being Gary Fensick and Peyton, you know, came along in the mid seventies and you must have been passing each other in the locker room, like in the mid eighties, looking at each other going, Oh my God, have things changed around here? You know, with like all of a sudden we're surrounded by all this crazy talent, you know, and we were here a decade ago when it was just different. And, and I asked him about page and he said, and he told me a story. And I've, I've also seen you tell this story, T tell the story about when it was clear that Neil Armstrong, the head coach for your first couple of years, it was clear he was going to be let go after the 81 season but the defense really loved playing for Buddy Ryan. And so you guys got together and, and, you know, tried to figure out a way to keep Buddy on board, regardless of who the new head coach was going to be. Tell that story. Cause I think it's just an amazing one. And you mentioned Neil Armstrong, who is one of the most decent, honorable men I've ever met. And I, I think the world of him. Yep. But in pro football, you're a product of your record. I mean, you could be the biggest rat's ass in the world and go 14 and two and everybody wants to put you, you know, 
on uh, Mount Rushmore. But you go two and 14, I'm sorry, uh, we got to make a change. Well, unfortunately, Neil was not a strong enough character to keep you got a bunch of 23, 28, 30-year-old men that all have all these other ideas about what's important in life. And a great coach has a way of kind of keeping them, you know, keeping the rig on the road where everybody's pulling in the same direction. And unfortunately, that team of Neil, it was going sideways. Anyway. We had started out the 1981 season where we were probably, there were 28 teams in the league then. We were like 26 after the first game. We had had a bad game. And um, say the fourth week, we were marginally better, but we had another bad game in the fifth week. Anyway, all of a sudden we kind of had a come to Jesus moment. And, and, it was all because of Buddy, and and Buddy said, "Look, what I'm I'm doing, you guys aren't capable of." And I think what he wanted us to do was some very basic defenses that you know the Minnesota Vikings would have been capable of, with you know all pros and you know all these different positions and all that. But we weren't physically good enough yet, and so he said, "The hell with it. We're gonna I'm gonna start attacking people." And so we kind of kicked into the 46 where he had Doug playing blitzing a lot. And it caught a lot of people off balance, especially on a Monday night game in Chicago where San Diego and Dan Fouts and, you know, their circus act offense really felt like they were going to come in and put 50 up on us and embarrass us on Monday night. And yet we beat them. We beat, we, we shut them down and beat them. And it was, it was like night and day confidence builder where we all kind of said, buddy knows what we're doing. And by the end of the year, we were like top five defense. And so going into the last week of the season, fencing, and a lot of people have tried to take credit for this, but it was Gary Fencing that came to me and said this. But he wanted Alan Page to be a part of it because Alan was obviously very instrumental in – are, are, are not instrumental. He, he had been a big part of Buddy Ryan's career in Minnesota with Jim Finks, and now Jim Finks is our general manager. So, yeah, Alan would be a great guy to have, you know, on your team. So he he came to me in a few, I think, Doug Plank, and we're all for it. And essentially what he's going to say is, we're going to write a letter to Hallis and say, look, you're not around here very much, but let me tell you what's going on. We've gone from 26 and top five and the offense has gone to shit. And guess what? You know, at the end of the day, we could be special if you just keep buddy around and let us keep kind of, you know, let this thing gin. Well, I was kind of bulletproof because, you know, I was a first round pick and I knew that. And, you know, I, 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 I'm in, yeah, let's do it. But some of the marginal players, they were kind of like, Oh, if I sign this, then, you know, uh, you know, it could get back to, to Jim thinks that I'm trying to undermine his authority. Uh, I didn't, I didn't see the downside, but a lot of guys did. But we all said either everybody signs it or nobody signs it, and so everybody signed it to their credit. Anyway, this was on a Monday. We our day off was Tuesday. I can't remember why, but I forgot all about it. <laughs> yeah, on my day off, we were doing I was doing something else. 
Wednesday, I came back to work. It's the last week of the season. We're not going to playoffs or anything. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the one more for the, uh, you know, for the gusto. And I come in and everybody's kind of buzzing. And I go, what's going on? They said, Hallis is here. And I said, oh, the letter. Anyway, we all, we're all sitting down and Neil Armstrong comes in. And I felt bad for him because nobody wrote a letter for Neil Armstrong. Unfortunately, as a human being, we should have wrote a letter, but this is about football. Yeah, of course. In football. Anyway, I felt bad for him. He goes, uh, gentlemen, uh, the owner, Mr. Hallis, would like to say a few words. Best part was Hallis comes in. He's got an overcoat and a hat on. You know, he's dressed like a little Chicago mobster. He, he comes in the door about three feet. He's probably 84 at the time. He goes, oh, you coaches, take a hike. <laughs> and so all the coaches get up and go out the door. And uh, he goes up to the front of the room. And uh, he said, you know, gentlemen, this has been a tough year, but I got to tell you, I've never been more proud of a group of men in my life because you care. You know, I knew professional football would be different because of the, the actual abstract concept of paying somebody to do something rather than them wanting to do it for the love of the game. But he says, I've, I've never been more proud of the fact that I started this organization 60 years ago. At the time, it's like 60 years ago. Then when I read this letter, and what it told me was that you desperately care about the Chicago Bears and their ability to be successful. And I mean, he almost he had almost tears coming out of his eyes. And we're all kind of looking around going, man, this is this is kind of like NFL history. And he said, without further ado, I'm going to present Buddy Ryan and his staff, Dale Hop and Jim LaRue, a three-year contract at a sizable race. Now there's going to be changes made on the other side of the of the field and at the head coach position, but Buddy Ryan will be my defensive coordinator for the next three years. Mm. And we all started clapping. And it was an amazing thing. You know, it's, it, you know, some smirk, uh, a, a smucky owner, they could have went behind the scenes and tried to take credit and said, look what I'm, I'm doing. But Hallis, I mean, it, again, we didn't have a whole lot of interaction with Mr. Hallis, but that, that, and then, when you contrast that to this, you know, smirking, Mike McCaskey two years later comes in going, well, I'm the new president and we're going to be doing things differently around it. You know, we, uh, I've seen a lot, Rich. I've seen a lot. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I, that story is just amazing to me. That's fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, so Buddy stays, Ditka comes in and, uh, but the relationship works. I mean, obviously in 84, I think that was the first time where people were kind of looking around, like, because all of a sudden that crazy 83 draft and all the other number one picks that you were talking about, that starts to all come together. And in 84, you guys are number one, the number one defense in the league, best in yards uh, allowed, best in uh, rushing yards, best in passing touchdowns, which is amazing. Most important, man, we set the NFL record for quarterback sacks. It yeah. still stands today after 40 years. Yeah, what was it? Was it 72? 72. 72? The most in NFL, you know, uh, history since I've been keeping it. Yeah. 
which is just amazing. And what I loved is your D-line that year. You, Dent, McMichael, and Hartenstein have 46 sacks between you, which I think is just great because, like, you know, obviously you guys are, you know, famous for the 46 defense. The number 46 keeps popping up in <laughs> all the yeah. things you're looking at. You win that first – you win that Super Bowl against New England, 46 to 10. Um, but uh, – so 84, all of a sudden the league is on notice. Now the problem is on the other side of the ball, you guys play six quarterbacks that year to include Walter Payton for one game. Um, and, you know, Greg Landry, who effectively is like a coach at that point, is brought out of retirement. I mean, it's like all this craziness on the offensive side. It was of the a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> So, but you, but you guys make it to the NFC Championship, and I think a lot of people are looking around, going, "Whoa, where'd this come from?" Um, and and then the next year, McMahon's healthy, and you guys have you know the season for the ages. Um, and you had to have known coming out of '84, were you guys thinking this is about to happen? Like we can feel this now. Yeah, yeah. You know, '84. So we have a we have a good. I think we're ten and six despite all the court, six different quarterbacks, but we go to Washington, D.C., and they still had the remnants of uh, their Super Bowl era with uh, Gibbs. You know, they had uh, Theismann and uh, Joe Washington and Monk and the, the Hogs and especially Riggins. Riggins. Riggins is one of the special players I ever played against because, uh, you know, there's a point where a lot of players will go down. He wouldn't go down. And I mean, he was uh, he was was an exceptional player, exceptional person. But you know, when we we I think they somebody told me that Washington we had the lead, and we they the, the Redskins had the ball six times in the fourth quarter on our side of the fifty, and they got zero points. So you know, we were making things happen in the defense. So we go the next week out to the 49ers and they had a great team. That 84 team, if you look at the greatest teams of all time, they're in the top three or four. Yep. So that we ran into a buzzsaw and then we ran into another buzzsaw in 88. That's They're in the top four or five teams of all time too. Yep. So the, the 49ers with Montana, they were, they were special. And, you know, it, it not that, hey, it is what it is. You know, you, you can't play in this this league without a quarterback, and you damn sure can't win a Super Bowl without him. So at the end of the day, uh, beating the Redskins, losing to the 49ers, it was one of those, you know, great, accomplished, okay, we know we're not there yet. And I remember being on the plane, flying back from Frisco, and <clears> – <throat> I kind of was going from player to player and I'd look at him and I'd say, make up your mind, make up your mind. This is the year. And it was kind of interesting. Months later, we're in, uh, we're in Platteville training and Dick, uh, you know, looking back and especially at the time, I, I didn't like it, but every day, twice a day, we were hitting and it was violent, violent, violent practices. I mean, I mean, as hard as games sometimes. And anyway, that was, it was like we were desperate to earn the right to be great. And Dicker made us do that. And wouldn't we have done it on our own? Maybe not. But at the end of the day, it got us where we wanted to be. But I remember Lou Holtz 
for whatever reason, <laughs> showed up in training camp for some media day or something. I don't know. Anyway, he said something after that. He said, I just want to be the first one to congratulate the, the Chicago Bears on winning the Super Bowl this year. And everybody laughed and they said, oh, really? They've already done it. He goes, look, I've never seen a team prepare like this. All those, you know, it engenders everyone buying in from the Walter Paytons, Jimbo Colberts, to the guys covering the kicks. Everybody's buying in. And so as the season, you know, took off, we won the first game, second, third, fifth, eighth. We're, we're I think, 11 and 0. We're 11 and 0. And now we got swagger. And we're saying, yeah, it's like the Rolling Stones were on like a, you know, uh, we show up at the hotel in Dallas, there's a thousand fans at the hotel, that kind of crap. So we're kind of we're kind of getting, you know, full of ourselves in a way. But I remember on the plane down to Dallas, Dallas was nine and two and we're 11 and 0. And they'd been in the championship game, I think a year before or two years before, or they won a Super Bowl. They still had a great team. They had, you know, Randy White, uh, Too Tall, and Danny White, and Tony Dorsett. They were a good team. Sure. And, and I remember Everson Walls had a quote in the paper, and they said, yeah, the Bears are 11 and 0, but they hadn't played nobody yet. Anyway, that stuck in my craw. So we get down to Dallas, and, of course, Dallas was where Dick came from. And it was – we could tell it was special – for him to have a chance to beat Landry, you know, Lou beat, you know, Ob uh, 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 Darth Vader, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that was kind of a big deal back then, you know. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it, it was one of those games where, I, okay, let's crank it up here. And uh, anyway, after we leaving the field after beating the Cowboys 44 to nothing, I remember running up the ramp there at Dallas Stadium and going to my locker and I take off my pads and turn around. There's all these cameras and media there. And I go, dude, Dan, what'd you think? I mean, did you expect to, to beat the Cowboys like this? This is amazing. And I said, well, the Cowboys said, you know, we're 11 and 0. We ain't played nobody. I said, well, we're 12 and 0 and now we still ain't played nobody. <laughs> so, Anyway, and that started a, like a blood feud with Dallas over the years. But anyway, you know, and, and, and it, there's certain games that legitimize your record. And that was one. Yep. And I think we lost uh, the next week and uh, two weeks later down in Miami. You know, we had a horrible first quarter. We got down 21 to nothing. We fought back, lost 38-24. But at the end of the day, just like the year prior where we thought, oh, we're, we've got it going. We beat the Redskins. We lose to the four. Well, we, you know, we killed Dallas. Oh, but then we stub our toe in Miami. We knew, we knew, yeah, it's kind of one of those old, you know, cliches, you know, got to take care of your, your own business. And everybody did. And to their credit, you know, shutting out the Giants and then shutting out the Rams. And then, you know, unfortunately, it, it, it was kind of a first – the first drive of the game in the Super Bowl, McMahon fumbles. He says, I don't know, him or Walter, somebody fumbled. 
And now they've got – Patriots got the ball on the 28. And they ran three plays, got zero yards. And, man, I wanted to block that kick to keep the shutout streak alive. But, man, we we just missed it. And uh, that really pissed us off then. So – and everybody knows we came back and killed them. But all in all, you know, nobody – and we saw that with Tom Brady, no, no, no matter – you know, how good you are, your team is, brother. Hey, if you have, you know, a couple of uh, bad plays and mistakes, anything is possible. But that 85 year, it was, uh, it was pretty special. Yeah. And, and, you know, much has been made about the relationship, the friction, whatever, between Ditka and Ryan, obviously it worked in that you guys were putting up these incredible performances in, you know, kind of 84 and 85 as 80, as the 85 season is going on, there's, you know, starting to be some buzz that Ryan's going to get a head coaching job and you guys are in new Orleans for the super bowl. And, you know, I'd love to hear your account of this story, but it's the night before the, you know, the, the game and you're going to watch some film and there's some, you know, kind of, there's some buzz that something's going on. Um, tell me a little bit about that meeting room the night before uh, the super bowl. This is before the internet and all that. So, Sure. The old timey scribe, you know, the sports writer. I think we had 23 or 27 writers following the team. So we were never at a shortage of angles and in, in different, you know, uh, uh, kind of hot topics. And one of the hot topics that week was that Philadelphia was making an offer to Buddy Rad. And in my mind, it's it's one of those things. Hey, he deserves it. That's his. That's his aspirations in life, and that's great. You know, I. I, I mean, that was. A, but we had a, a, a certain faction of players on our team led by Mike Schindler. Oh no, no, no! We need Buddy to stay. We need Buddy to stay. Anyway, so you know, we had all this stuff playing out, and so it comes night before the game, Saturday night, and uh, Gary Fensick comes up to me and he goes, "Hey, Ann, look." I'm just telling you, I just I just talked to Buddy, and Buddy said he's agreed to take the coaching job. And he says he may not be able to keep it together. So if he kind of breaks down and has a, like a you know a deal, we need to be able to kind of kind of keep the spirit up. Hey, we got to play a big game the next day, so we can't have all this modeling crap. So sure. I said, no worries, got it. Anyway, so as we're in the meeting. We come in and everybody saw him and Buddy comes in and normally he's got his uh, paper and he's like, all right, Hamp, if I see you get trapped one goddamn time, I'm taking your ass. You know, he'd go through everybody and give you your reminders. But he wasn't doing that. And he, it's like he was trying to talk and he couldn't talk. And I tell Mongo. McMichael. I tell Mongo, I said, look, Fensick said, Buddy's leaving, so if he gets, you know, gets all, you know, in this emotional state or something, we're going to have to do something to, like a diversion. And Mike Singletary is sitting on the other side of him and heard me say that, <laughs> and I stood up, and I and we we always watch the last half of the team we're playing film, okay. So we're watching the Patriots, the second half of last week's game, the Patriots beating the, the Miami Dolphins. 
Right. Anyway, so just as we did that, everything kind of went down at the same time. We turned the lights out. We we started the the old projector. But I stood up and I kicked the projector over. Okay, and I I screamed, "Turn the lights on!" Mongo jumps up, takes a like a you know those cheap metal chairs you see in hotels. Yeah. You know? He takes it and he throws it at the blackboard. You know, they had a blackboard up there where Buddy had written, you know, I, I, I can't even remember what he had written. Anyway, the chair goes into the blackboard and then pales, and it's stuck in there, and it ain't moving. It was like something <laughs> out of a Spielberg movie. Anyway, I said, that's it. We're not watching no more GD film. We're out of here. And we walk out because we've been watching film for two weeks. We're sick of it. Right. And it... And nobody said another, another word about it. And we show up in the locker room and everybody's getting taped up and, and here we go. And at the end of the game, you know, in 1984, when we set the, when we, uh, we made the playoffs, first time the Bears had won the division. And okay, we're, we're playing Minnesota in 84. I don't know, you could have been there. Um, I didn't think it was anything special, but if we win that game, we we lock up the division. It's like in December. Anyway, so we win the game, and I'm all happy. And I'm, and I'm on the sidelines, and it's like 38 to 6, and I'm cutting the tape off my hands, you know, at the end of the game. And I look over, and my buddy, my dear teammate, Jim Osborne, Sure. Kind of like got tears in his eyes. And I said, Oz, Oz, are you okay? You hurt? He goes, no. And I said, what do you, what do you, what do you got tears for? He goes, I'm happy, man. He goes, I've been here 14 years. We've never won the division. This is the first time we made the playoffs as wild card, but never won the division. And I'm thinking, holy shit, these guys talk about, you know, the uh, legacy of, of, of crap. You know, you fought 13 years and you you never win the division, let alone anything. And so I'm thinking somehow, some way I got to do something stupid to commemorate this. And Brian McKeskey, the youngest of the 13 McKeskey kids, was our assistant trainer. He's getting ready to dump the Gatorade out. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. And so I ran over and I got it. And I told Mongo, I said, when right before they shoot the gun at the end of the game, remember that you said that? Yeah, of course. Uh, I said, you grab Dick just so he can't get away from me because his bucket weighs 40 pounds. And I said, I'm going to dump this on his ass. And he goes, great. So we do that. So we do that. That was the start of the Gatorade dump. But right. anyway, so when we won the division the next year, that was like week 10. Who cares? Nobody cared. We'd been there, done that. So now we're in the Super Bowl. I wanted to do something that commemorate that. Now, I told Fridge and Mongo, I said, you go get your boy Ditka because they were they were they were more of a favorite of Coach Ditka's than Richard Dent and I. In fact, I think he hated both of us. <laughs> but anyway, I said Dent and I are going to carry Buddy off the field because this is the last time ever we're going to have him as our coach. I said, you guys get Ditka so he doesn't get his feelings hurt. They said, okay. So that, anyway, so we carry them both off the field and it was great. And, you know, uh, there was a movie called uh, uh, My Favorite Year 
a long time ago. And it was kind of a, you know, quirky little movie. But anyway, it was like the guy going back to his favorite time in life. And it'd be real, it'd be real hard to say that wasn't, you know, all of our best time in life because, you know, so many of those guys, they started playing ball and I played through junior high and high school and all that. And then, you know, the, the consummation of winning a Super Bowl, it's a, it's, it's the first time in your life you can go like that. And it really does matter. It counts. Because even the national champion, they're not really the greatest of all time. NFL could kick their ass. So when you win the Super Bowl, you can do that. And it means something. Yeah. That's that's awesome. That, that's awesome. <laughs> I read a great quote. You were talking about Ditka and somebody said, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's crazy or something. And you're like, well, I don't know if he's crazy. I'm not sure if he should be committed, but if he was in the asylum, I'm not sure I could get him out. <laughs> I said, I don't know if we could get him committed, but if he was in there, I know we can't get him out. <laughs> but I love coaching real quick, just to let you know that, you know, he's battling health issues. He's 82 or three now. Yep. And he, his birthday was back in February, I believe. And, you know, uh, if you're thinking about uh, Coach Dick, send a prayer. He could use it. Sure. Yep. No, that, that's a that's a great point. Um, so I have to. So so one thing I have to ask you about, in addition to all the accolades, you know, both you know from your Southwest Conference days, but also obviously your NFL days, you were put on the All Madden team six times, and you were named to the All Decade team. What does that mean to you as a player? That's great. I'm going to try to do this. Okay, on the wall over there, there is a, a picture. Tell me yep. if you see it. I can see it. Okay. That picture was the very, very first All Madden Team Award presentation. If you made the All Madden Team in 1984, you got that poster, that picture, and a sweatshirt that says All Madden which I started mowing the grass in and I wish I would have kept it, but I still have that. The next year he got big time and he got the, uh, the big brass, uh, you know, trophies made Ed white, the, the great offensive guard from Minnesota yep. uh, in San Diego was making those, but that was the very first award. And he told me that that dude in that picture was his, what would you call it? His his mental vision uh, image of me and Anthony Munoz. Hmm. He, for whatever reason, he he really you know he loved a lot of players, but I guess he really liked he really loved the Bears and he liked me and and I'm so thankful for that. But uh, that's what he told me. He said that was kind of like a, a montage of me and. You know, because he wasn't about the uh, the the you know the star quarterbacks and and the fancy running backs and reason. It was about the big ugly, you know, yeah. the big offensive defensive linemen. And I always thought that may have that could be the greatest, you know, not testimony or whatever, the greatest uh, compliment of my so-called football career. Yeah. You know, and, and it's so funny. And, and to reference Fensick again, he said the same thing. He made it one year and uh, he said the same thing. He's like, it's like the ultimate stamp of approval. He's like, all the other stuff is awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> there was nobody like John Madden. And you know what? I got to tell you, there was such a confluence of 
of amazing things that happened in the 80s. And my son is 20 years old, and he still listens to the music of the, the 80s, country music, rock music, whatever. I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing time. You know, we had a magnificent president. <clears throat> we, had a, uh, we had a great commissioner of the NFL. We had guys like John Madden and Bill Walsh and, and Mike Ditka and Joe Gibbs and Tom Landry in the NFL. I mean, real iconic, iconic figures. I, I, and I, 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 I've said this, you know, many, many times. I said, I'm so blessed to be able to have whatever it took to be able to play the game of football but if the McCaskies would have known, I would have played for free. They never would have had to pay me. No, you'd have to pay me to practice. <laughs> I played for free. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I, I always love asking these questions. Who was the guy on your team? Could have been Peyton. Could have been one of the guys who you lined up with on the D-line. Who was the guy where you would just look and go, my God, I would pay to watch this guy play? Walter, hands yeah. down. Walter was exceptional in so many ways. And, you know, it's unfortunate. There is a hell of a toll. I, I had a, my son and I went over and helped a friend yesterday. We cutting trees and clearing out timber. And I'm sore as hell today because it's like I'm a car with 400,000 miles on it. You know, all my joints and, you know, I, I did, but I'm not complaining. I'm, I, but I'm just saying it's a shame that when we became great, Walter was at the end of his, you know, most running backs, they're done after five years. Right. We didn't become great until his 10th year. And so a lot of people didn't get to see the true amazing talent that he had 75, 6, 7, 8, 9, 80, 81. Although all those years, it's almost like it, nobody got to see him. Wilbur Marshall was amazing. Richard Dent was amazing. Steve McMichael was just a warrior. He and I took such great pride in, in, in trying to dominate, you know, at the line of scrimmage. Gary Fensick was such a smart player, never took a wrong step. I love playing with Doug Plank. I love, you know, Jimbo Covert and Mark Borch were such great offensive linemen. You know, my, I can't sleep at night because of all the times we had to ram each other in practice. But they were great. So at the end of the day, it wasn't one, but Walter would be the, the tip of the spear. But we had so many. It was, it was, you know, guys like Lawrence Taylor, you know, there's only a handful of them. We had easily maybe the best in Walter. Yeah. And who were the offensive linemen who – were just, you know, either you just thought to yourself, my God, this is going to be a war today. Who were the guys who were just? You know, a guy nobody really talks about is Mike Munchak. Munchak, he and I, you know, for whatever reason, the great John had, I had some success against him. I I think he was, you know, maybe the best offensive lineman all time. I'm just saying, Mike Munchak, for whatever reason, I mean, it was it, there was a guard for the Raiders. It was a hell of a player, Wisniewski. Uh, tackles, you know, Dan Deerdorf is a great player. Mon, uh, 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 Anthony Munoz may have been the best tackle I ever watched. Um, you know, the Hogs, they had a bunch of good players. Mike Webster was just a, just a 
freaking nightmare. Um, you, um, you know, you, you play in the league long enough, you find out that over half of them are, are able to on, get on call to kick your ass if you're not at your greatest point. But there's, there's always a couple of them that, hell, they're, they're just really good. And if you can split it and go 50-50 with them, you're doing a hell of a job. Yeah. And the last two I'll ask you, you, you mentioned Riggins earlier. What running backs were just a, a, a pain to either bring down because they were so tough or to catch because they were so quick and elusive? Billy Sims. Billy Sims, if, he, if you watched him before he got hurt, he could have been like crazy special. Uh, yeah. Billy Sims and Barry Sanders, those two guys. You know, we handled Dickerson. We handled uh, other people. But, you know, Barry Sanders, he, you'd break fingers trying to tackle him because, you know, you'd whiff and hit, and hit your hands together so hard you'd break your fingers. Uh, but Billy Sims, I remember Buddy Ryan would very seldom ever point out greatness on the opposing team. I don't know, maybe he didn't want to scare anybody, you know, <laughs> go look at this shit. But I remember one time he pointed out a Billy Sims run. I think Billy was a rookie or second-year player before he got hurt. And Buddy kind of was shaking his head like I've never seen anything like that. So those were the those were the two backs of our era that was amazing. Okay. And the last one, the last question I have for you is uh, quarterback. Who was the toughest quarterback where you just thought, you know, either again, damn, this guy gets rid of the ball so fast I can't get to him, or he's just a moose to take down? Three. Elway was John Wayne and, and shoulder pads. He was a tough guy. I was 6-0 and against him, but, I mean, I watched a lot of film on him. He, he was a great quarterback. Making, he was a general. You know, he would lead the charge and find a way to win. Sure. Uh, Marino, that game will forever and a day stick in our craw. They beat us. And most highest rank, you know, more people have watched Monday Night Games since then, but per viewer, television's on, that was the highest ranked of all time, I think still to this day. Yep. And that, that leaves a mark. And it's all because of him. Three or four times in the game, I mean, I will swim the, the guard, and I mean, before I could get eight yards deep, he already thrown a twenty-five yard crosser. You know, you gotta you, you gotta give the credit to Montana. Beat us twice in the championship game, keeping me from going back to Super Bowl. So you know, that to me is probably the uh, you know the uh, the ultimate dagger. They beat us in '84 and '88, keeping us from a couple more Super Bowls, and it was all because of Montana. Yeah, they had Jerry Rice in '88, and they had a great team in '84 too. Yeah, well, Dan. So I, I want to read two things. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. It, it's been so awesome listening to you know the stories and and you know kind of how that team came together, and obviously just you know what an incredible background. Um, uh, I recently inter in interviewed Jan Stenrud. And uh, Hank Stram had talked about impact. And he said, you know, it's hard to you know, imagine a guy having more impact than a guy like Stenroot. And I saw a stat on you that from 83 to 90, right? So this is, you know, you've got a couple of years into the league now. Your team is starting to come together. Your last eight seasons, when you're in the game, 
you guys give up 14 points a game, you get three and a half sacks, you win three quarters of your game, 75%. When you're not in the game, you give up 23 points, almost 10 full points more, 2.3 sacks, so 30% less, and you win a third of the time. So when you talk about impact, like those numbers just jumped off the page at me. I, I, I couldn't believe it. So that's obviously a you know huge testimony to, to you and, and you know what you brought to the table. Um, I also, I, I love this quote from, uh, from Buddy Ryan. So um, Buddy said, Dan was the cornerstone of the 46. He was drawing a constant double team. He was our guy. And I, you know, I know how much he means to you. So, you know, when you're talking about, I think Ron Jaworski wrote a book talking about like the seven mo- most momentous things that have happened in the last, you know, 60 years of pro football or something. And one of them was the 46 defense. And for a guy like Buddy Ryan to say that you were the cornerstone of it, that's got to mean something. Uh, very kind. Love Buddy. Uh, we had a lot of great players. I'll just tell you this. <clears throat> yeah, I could be a pain in the ass and all that, but my greatest compliment Buddy ever gave me was the only thing worse than playing with Hampton is playing without him. There you go. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Dan Hampton, thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. It's been so great, you know, kind of walking through your years growing up in Arkansas, the years with the Razorbacks playing for Lou, uh, obviously the Bears years that, you know, being part of most iconic defense of all time. Madden called it the greatest team of all time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on Chasing Hardware. Hey, thank you for what you're doing, Rich. Hey, like I said, you know, everybody, they they kind of – think about those those teams but you're actually bringing them to life and i appreciate that my pleasure i I couldn't be happier doing it take care dan and thank you for listening to chasing hardware i've been your host rich lumello the michael stanley band brought us in and the suburbs with life is like are going to take us out speak to you next time tonight it feels like life come on life is like Life is like what it is.